many of us like practical sermons. We like to be able to do something with the word of God, and that is a good and it is a noble desire. We like to find something in a sermon by which we can, or which we can get hold of, which we can say, hey, I know that in particular, I want to take that and I want to apply that in my life. I want to be able to say, okay, that was, that was a good thing, and when I think about that, I think about this relationship that I've got with this person where I can apply, be patient, or some situation at work where I can go, okay, I need to be more productive, or I need to be less lazy in this situation, or perhaps in our family life. And for the last five weeks, we have had a series of very practical sermons. I hope they have been practical for you, from Tommy preaching on Deuteronomy chapter 6 last week. It was practical to you if you showed up for Sunday school this week. Uh, If you didn't show up, it was still practical. You just didn't follow the practical advice uh, that was contained in uh, the sermon last week. And then over the course of August, we looked uh, at Proverbs and we looked at different aspects of the Christian home. And I hope you found things in them that were applicable for you, for your lives, for your home. At the end of this sermon, I will provide you with one, one very specific application. Whether you do it or not, that will be up to you. You will have to wrestle with that before the Lord, whether you want to do it or not. But I will provide it, I promise. Now, forget about being practical. I just put that aside. I promise there will be something practical at the end of that. For the next few minutes... For the sake of your soul, just enjoy the beauty. As C.S. Lewis might say, take time to enjoy what is set before you now instead of doing something else. We have noticed in a modern world how when people get into a significant setting, what do they do? If If it's a beautiful place of scenery, if it's something significant going on in front of them, what do you do? You grab your phone and you hold it up. And so you interrupt the moment by trying to record the moment. So I know none of you put your phones up in sermons, which I'm thankful. I'm thankful for that. But use the analogy here. Put the phones down and enjoy the vista that is opened up, that is set before us in this prologue that John sets up. It is unimaginably old, it is unthinkably large, and it is so surprisingly intimate. As one thinks about this, we, we initially, when you, when you read these words, I hope as evangelicals we haven't become so accustomed to these words that they just kind of roll off of our tongues. We don't think about them. Because if we, if, if we didn't, if we were reading them for the first, for the second, for the third, even for the fifth time, we would realize that we kind of teeter on the edge of, of our own insignificance, of our own lostness, when you consider the scope of what is set before us. And we almost feel like we're going to fall into an abyss and then what you realize the more you look at it is wait a minute wait a minute what we're talking about here is everything there's no thing that we're not talking about in John chapter 1 there isn't anything outside of the sphere of John chapter 1 
some wonder of wonders. I'm not lost in everything. I'm found in John chapter 1. This is the story of the Son of God, of Jesus the Christ, the living one, who was and is and is to come. Who is he? What has he done? Who cares? What difference does it make? John writes his gospel, and as he writes this gospel, he probably has in mind his fellow Jews. And he wants to write to them and explain to them who is the Christ, who is the Son of God. The passage before us today is something of a fire hydrant that is opened up as a, as a when I was thinking about this passage as a pastor, as your pastor, I'm, I was initially trying to think, how do I, how do I, throw a little glass into this fire hydrant of water coming out, grab a little glass and give it to you so that it is, you can take it in. And I, I really wrestled with that. I wanted to say, I'm just going to get hold of one particular thing because you can come to this and do particular things. I preached on this exact same passage on Christmas Day this year. But I thought, you know what? I'm not going to do that because that's not John's purpose. John's purpose is the fire hydrant wide open right now. So in what I'm about to say, and I'm going to answer these questions, who is he? What has he done? What does he do? And what difference does it make? But this is the fire hydrant of that. You don't have to get all these. You just have to hear them the way John introduces it. We'll find all these things again later in the Gospel of John and be able to come back to them. So we begin with the question, who is he? Who is this son of God? The first thing that John says in answer to that question of who is he, John says, he is, period, end of sentence, he is. Now, if you were a young Jewish girl, if you were a young Jewish boy, and someone came up to you, wanted to do a little testing of your parents, a little testing of uh, the Hebrew school that you've been going to. And they said to you, in the beginning, fill in the blank. You might say, in the beginning, and you respond, God. And they'd say, great, very good, what? In the beginning, God created. Good? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John knows that catechism, he knows the question, and he knows the answer. So when John starts out his gospel with exactly those words and changes them, he says, I want you to think a different way. I want you to think about that, but I want you to think about something else in addition to what you've been so used to hearing all of the days of your life. I want you to go back in time. And I want you to go back in time, not only to the beginning of creation, in the beginning God created, that's the beginning of creation, but John says, if you want an answer to the question, who is the Christ, who is the Son of God, you actually need to start before creation. 
creation isn't a sufficient starting point to understand who is the Son of God. You've got to go back before creation. And that's dizzying. Most of us can barely remember what happened five years ago. Let alone to go back a thousand years, two thousand years, thousands of years, and then back before time. And say, if you want to understand this man and who is the son, you got to go back before creation. Before creation, the word is. There is never a time when there was not the word, which is to say, if we want to be more specific, he is, he is eternal. And if you were Jewish and you heard that, you might think, okay, well, only God is. Nobody else fits that category. Only God is. Only God is eternal. And so perhaps you kind of look at this and you say, all right, well, maybe John is talking about here is just he's using a, another word, the word word, uh, logos. He's using another word to describe God. And that's okay. Lots of people have used, lots of prophets have used various terms to describe God. Maybe it's just another way to say God. And so the third verse or the third phrase of verse one is okay with you and the word was God. Okay, all right, I, I get that, the word was God. But of course, that's undone and it has already been undone by the clause that precedes it that comes right before it. He is, he is eternal, he is God. Yes, yes, and yes to all of those things, but he is also with. God. He was with God. And then in verse 2 as well, he was in the beginning with God, which continues the dizziness. Because you kind of look at that and you say, all right, I have to resolve this. Can, can you really have it both ways? Can you really say he is God? and he's with God, can that be, can he be that? And John continues, he is. And he is life. He is not, he does not merely exist. In fact, in him, inherent in him, intrinsic in him is animation is liveliness. In him was life. Verse 4. It is an essential quality of the Son of God that life is in him, as opposed to something that was given to him. There wasn't a time, not only when he was not, there wasn't a time when he wasn't alive. Where when he wasn't the living one. There wasn't a time when he achieved consciousness. There was no process of awakening. There was no like uh, science fiction AI moment when he became self-aware. He is life and connected to that for John he is light. 
He is the true light. And as I said on Christmas morning, this is a place where when you're trying to understand what is John saying and what is he talking about here, it's a place where metaphor and reality get a little bit confusing. It's hard to separate those two things. He has the quality of light about him. Light is essential to his being. Light emanates from him. And if it's puzzling to you, if you're kind of reading through John and you think this is a wonderful Christology, it's extraordinary what's being said about the Christ and about the Son of God here, why do we pick up with John in verses 6 through 8? What's, what's the point of hearing about John? It is because John here serves as a foil for us to understand the uniqueness of Jesus. John may be bright. What does Jesus say about him? Jesus says of John that among those who are born of women, there's nobody greater than John. So we might say, listen, of of people, this guy is bright. This guy is a luminary amongst men, amongst prophets. John may be bright, but the point here is to say he is derivative. He is not the light. The Son of God is uniquely the light. And in order to understand these two passages, what you have to have is Genesis 1 and John 1 opened up against one another. Because what is being said here is John is the moon to the sun. There aren't two great lights. There's one. Okay? In creation, there's one great light. Two things are called light. One is a light. The other draws its light and reflects its light from something else. And so what John, the gospel writer, has in mind here is that John the Baptist has exactly this same effect. He has the effect of enabling us to see another light, the one who is the true light, the one who is the source of light from whom all light emanates. Who is the Son of God? He is. He is eternal. He is with God. He is God. He is life. He is light. And to go back and circle back to the beginning, he is the Word. What is a word? It is that by which something is known, something is comprehended, something is addressed. Adam, name the animals. Provide words. He talked about these things. A word allows for communication. It allows for communion to take place. Hear this. The eternal God was never lonely. He never felt lonely in eternity past. The word was always with him. The communicative word was always with him. The word never felt lonely. His father was with him. We'll talk about the spirit more as John goes along. 
what John says. If you want to have a theory of everything, if you want to make sense of the universe, of the world, you have to begin not only at the beginning, you have to begin before the beginning with the ever-living one who is. And then, inseparably from that, but connected to it, you have to ask this question, what has he done or what does he do as the son of God? I want to begin by answering that question negatively. What doesn't he do? What he doesn't do, what the Son of God doesn't do, is he doesn't remain aloof. He doesn't keep his distance from his creation. He doesn't say, well, listen, I'm God. I'm the eternal word. I don't need to get down with that creation. I made him after all. I can stay separate from them. I can keep to myself. No, the Son of God, the Word, isn't withdrawn, reserved, uninterested, uninvolved, and he is not dismissive. He is not a distant potentate. So what has he done? This is what John is going to explain to us. What has the Son done? And I will be brief with these because, as I said, the rest of the Gospels will fill it in. The eternal word, the Son of God, creates. All things were made through him. I bet a number of our young children could answer that, that children's catechism question. I know they could. Who made you? God. What else did God make? All things. All things are made by him. That's a really easy thing to say. And, and, and could there be anything more comprehensive to say? That all of it is made by God. Uh, Colossians 1.15 on the beginning. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. What has the word done? He has created. And if you look at these tenses, the idea is, yep, he created everything you can see on the first day of creation, and he's created everything you can see now. He animates. Secondly, in him we live and move and have our being. In him all things hold together. He says, I am the life. And whether we recognize it or not, all that lives and all that breathes and everything that has being is alive because life is in him, because life emanates from him. Third, he illuminates. He is the light of men. The light 
shines in the darkness. He is the true light which enlightens everyone. Now, little parentheses, some people may like light and others will hate it. Regardless, he enlightens everyone. Fourth, what has he done? He came. Verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Verse 10, he was in the world. Verse 11, he came to his own. He comes. And in order to come, the next point, he becomes. In order to come, he becomes. Because the question is, how does one so unique, so omnipotent, so eternal, how does one so bright come into the world? All of us were sick to death of hearing, don't look at the sun during the eclipse. All of us were sick of it. But the idea was simple, right? You look at the sun during the eclipse, or for that matter, at any time, you look at the sun, you're going to hurt your eyes. You're going to damage your eyes. The sun shines, but it is a created thing. It shines because of the light that is Jesus Christ. So how does that brightness come into the world and not blind us, not destroy us, not overwhelm us? Well, John tells us, and he tells us plainly, he becomes enfleshed, incarnate. He dons flesh. He doesn't give everybody sunglasses. He takes on flesh. He takes on what we are, and he identifies with us. And you've got two things set here, set in opposition to one another, our creation and incarnation. And they're set right there to say that this man comes into the world and light comes into the world. And John is saying, yeah, light comes into the world and this man comes into the world. Both with cosmic worldwide responsibilities. You have to understand creation and incarnation together. Set beside one another. And he makes possible in what he becomes, he makes possible what would otherwise be impossible. He allows us to see God. Because no one had ever seen God before. He allows us to see God for becoming. Six, he dwells with us. He's not a quick appearance. He's not a facsimile. He doesn't just drop in. John says, we saw him. We heard him, we touched him. He pitched his tent with us, he tabernacled among us. He lived with us. Seven, he distributes grace upon grace is what he gives. Truth and grace come from Jesus Christ. And number eight, he reveals. He shows us the Father 
He makes the Father known. Last verse here of this section, 18. He shows to us the glory of God, which is to say that the incarnate word of God is the answer to a very old prayer. The prayer is, show me your glory. Show me your glory. And Moses will get a little flash of that, just a little taste of what that's like. And now that prayer is answered in the one who reveals the Father to us. So what? Who cares? Well, some people don't care at all. That's going to be John's point. Some people don't care at all. Came to his own, his own didn't receive him. Who cares about what he's done and about who he is? What difference does it make? Let me try and draw for you two things from the Gospel of John, from these first 18 verses. First, what John has done by describing the word is he has thrown a lasso around the universe, around the verse. That's a show we used to watch, called it. He's thrown a lasso around the universe. You remember the scene in It's a Wonderful Life, kind of classic scene that is there. George lassos the moon. What does it want, Mary? You want the moon? I'll throw a lasso around it. Pull it down, and I'll give it to you. I'll take it. John lassos the universe. He lassos this world, this creation, all that there is in all of its vastness and all of its complexity. He puts a lasso around it. He pulls it in. And he says, this is all created by the word. The word made all of this. And all of this, what you see, is charged. It's charged by the grandeur of the glory of God for our Manly Hobbit. All of it sings as we have seen in the first and third hymns that we sang today, all of it sings, the hand that made me is divine. The moon and the stars sing that. Michael Reeves writes in a book, there is something gratuitous about creation, an unnecessary abundance of beauty and through its blossoms and pleasures we can revel in the sheer largesse of the Father. John shows us a vast universe which is personal and which of which we are a connected part. Imagine this for a moment. Imagine that you've got a pair of shoes and somebody says about your pair of shoes, hey, that's a nice pair of shoes. Now, maybe you just picked them up anywhere. DSW, wherever you picked them up, nah, I picked them up at DSW. Who made them? I don't know. I don't know. Some, some shoemaker made them. 
But imagine that you had a pair of shoes that was made by a guy you know named Giovanni. And Giovanni, he, he came to the States after World War II and he set up a little shoe shop and you happen to know Giovanni. And he makes these shoes in a little place that you happen to know of and you met him and you know his family and you own those shoes. And somebody says to you, nice shoes. What happens? You tell them a story. You tell them the story of this person that you know who made these shoes. John takes a vast universe that seems to us, as moderns especially, to be utterly impersonal, to be beyond comprehension, and he could care less about us. And he throws a lasso around it. And he says, you know who made that? The Word. That's one implication of this. Secondly, John has not introduced us to a mere God, to simply an almighty designer. John has introduced us to a father and his one and only son who delights in each other. And as a result of the delight that they have in one another, they don't need anybody else. But it is their delight to create. It is their delight to give and to overflow for others and to bring others in. And so what happens, because it's not just a God, what happens is a father and son who have been introduced to us who are from eternity past and have always been together and are responsible for the creation of all things. That story that is as big as it can possibly be gets as small as it can possibly go and it says, a way for you to be adopted into the family has been opened up. You can't go from bigger than everything to more significant than adoption into a family, the most personal thing you can possibly have. That's what John is showing us in the prologue. And it's because of who he is and what he's done. So here's your practical application. This application applies. I had thought about this before making this application. I was going to say that this application applies to those who are five years old to 97. I don't think we have anyone over 97, over 98 in the church. But I was corrected this morning because I found out that it actually applies to four-year-olds as well. There's a four-year-old who's up on this application as God's providence would have it. Here's the application. Memorize John 1, 1 to 5. That's it. Memorize John 1, 1 to 5, word perfect. However you want to do it, go home, pull out a file card, go old school, write it on a file card, set your phone, use it as a reminder, put it in front of you with a note, an alarm on it to review it. Memorize it. 
it changes everything. It changes everything. But there's a second part, just one application. It has a second part to it, though. You have to get outside. You have to get outside. And as the sun rises or as the sun sets or the moon rises or the moon sets, you have to say John 1, 1 to 5 out loud. This is not just a story about the word as if words are just things on a page. This is a grand story of creation, of incarnate creation that involves matter, ours, and matter, the world. And you can't understand John 1, 1 through 5 by being inside. You actually have to be outside. You have to be in the creation. You have to be standing in the cathedral of the creation of God and say those things out loud. And what you will find is that the world will get a little bit smaller. The moon will seem a little bit closer. The sun will seem a little bit more intimate, a little bit more grand. Because you will realize <coughs> that what you are seeing and what you are beholding is something that was created by the intimate lover of your soul. You know the maker of those things, the Son of God, the eternal Word. And to all who receive him, you in so doing will be enveloped in his life and in his light which is unimaginably old and always new. Gracious God, there are things that we could perhaps understand because we've been made in your image, because this world has been created by you, eternal power and deity. We might be able to perceive them. We might be able to perceive, however vaguely, a debt we owe, a desire to worship. We might be able to perceive perhaps our guilt. But what we could not perceive had you not revealed it to us through the word, by the spirit, is that to all who will receive you, who will believe in your name, you will give the right to become the children of God. Thank you. For the creation that you have made, thank you for the incarnation that you have accomplished. Thank you for the enlightenment that you have given, and we pray that you would give it still and give it abundantly. We ask this, Jesus, in your name, the name above every name. Amen.